Hello and welcome to Swana Region Radio, a weekly review of politics and culture, bringing you the voices of the voiceless from Calcutta to Casablanca on Pacifica Station KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, as well as streaming worldwide on kpfk.org. My name is David Lloyd, and I'm a member of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective, that brings you SWANA Region Radio every week. My co-host is fellow collective member Ankine Antaram. Welcome to the show today, Ankine. Thank you, David. So daily headlines over the last year have reminded us constantly of the war in Ukraine and of the savage toll of civilian lives, not to mention the military casualties on both sides that has followed from Russia's invasion and relentless bombardment of civilian infrastructure and homes. This has been a very public war and widely denounced, but globally there are numerous wars and civil conflicts that pass beneath the radar of public attention. These are the invisible wars, and in all too many of them, the United States plays a considerable role in instigating and prolonging the fighting, and bears a largely unacknowledged responsibility, first for civilian casualties and the desperate economic and humanitarian situations that wars everywhere create. From Palestine, Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan to Central Asia, the US has furnished the weaponry, the logistical support, the training, and in most cases, the personnel that maintain these disastrous wars whose main victims have been civilians. One ongoing conflict that only occasionally makes the headlines is the civil war in Yemen, now in its eighth year. Civil war broke out there in 2015 after a long period of civil strife between the Shia Houthi tribe and the Sunni Salafi regime of Ali Abdullah Saleh that has been, had been in power since 1978 and unified the country in 1990. Those conflicts were complicated by U.S. attacks on al-Qaeda in Yemen in the wake of 9-11 in 2001. When Saleh was forced out in the course of the Arab Spring in 2011, an unexpected alliance emerged between his forces and the Houthis, who in 2014 captured the historic Yemeni capital Sana'a, and overthrew the government of Abdul Rabu Mansur Hadi, the president of the time. Houthi efforts to dominate the rest of the country have been opposed by a multinational coalition led by Saudi Arabia following UN Security Council Resolution 2216, adopted in April 2015, that authorized military intervention against the Houthi rebels and the reinstatement of Hadi as the recognized president of Yemen. The involvement of yet other combatants, including militant Islamist groups and separatists backed by the United Arab Emirates, has complicated the picture, as has the fact that Iranian support for the Houthis has turned the conflict in Yemen into what amounts to a proxy war. The Saudi campaign, supplied and supported by the United States and various European nations, has been especially violent, including the bombardment of schools, hospitals, and other civilian infrastructure, and with over 4 million people already internally displaced and a collapsing economy. The UN has declared Yemen one of the direst humanitarian crises being faced globally today, as famine threatens more than half of the population. And despite the months of substantial reduction, even the near cessation of military offensives between the Houthis and the Saudi UAE-led coalition during a UN-brokered truce last year, and especially following its expiration on October the 2nd, Yemen today is far from peaceful. So today we explore efforts to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war on Yemen with Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund, 
Kevin previously served as Director of Project Abolition, a national organizing effort for nuclear disarmament. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, Los Angeles Times, the Progressive, Z Magazine, and many other publications. Kevin has traveled abroad representing peace action and the US peace movement on delegation and at conferences in Russia, Japan, China, Mexico, and Britain. Welcome, Kevin Martin. Thank you, glad to be here with you. If you could first let our listeners know a little bit more about the organization, Peace Action, its history, the kind of work you do, and any current campaigns other than than Yemen, which we'll come back to talk about. Peace Action goes all the way back to the founding of SANE, the Committee for a SANE Nuclear Policy in 1957. And at that time, the concern about nuclear weapons was paramount and remains to this day one of our major foci. Same at the time was one of the early national organizations to oppose the Vietnam War and sponsored or co-sponsored some of the early demonstrations against the Vietnam War. And then in the 80s, the nuclear weapons freeze movement, a lot sparked by fear of Ronald Reagan and that he might start a nuclear war, which includes people like me. That's when I got active as a peace and disarmament activist was in the early 80s because of Ronald Reagan. He was quite a recruiter for a lot of people my age who who got involved then. And some of us have been involved, you know, all that time. And then later, so those two organizations, SANE and the Nuclear Weapons Freeze Campaign merged, and we changed the name to Peace Action. So that's been since 1993. Uh, But we are pretty unique in that we're genuinely grassroots organization with affiliates and chapters and associates and members all around the country. Plus, we have international partners. We work very closely with other peace movements around the world as well. So today uh, we're focusing on Yemen. Uh, What is the current situation there, both with regards to where things stand in the ongoing war and in relation to the alarming humanitarian crisis? Well, as you mentioned in your very comprehensive overview, the situation is very tense and um, I, I would say fraught with the potential for renewed conflict. This horrible civil war that has created, uh, as mentioned, one of the worst humanitarian catastrophes you know, has been going on since 2014. The efforts of people in this country to stop US support for the Saudi-led war have been effective. We have been effective in in affecting the situation on the ground and helping to save lives. And as mentioned, the ceasefire, which expired in October, while there is no official ceasefire or extension to replace that, uh, the Saudis have not conducted a single airstrike uh, since then. And of course, that's been one of the major problems, as mentioned, Uh, in terms of fairly indiscriminate bombing that that has killed and harmed civilians. But there's nothing that says tomorrow, all of a sudden, that the Saudis wouldn't start uh, airstrikes again. So we're in a very fraught situation. Just today, I was on a call with a a coalition of groups, including uh, Aisha Juman, who's the president of an organization that I highly recommend called Yemeni Relief and Reconstruction Fund. And she evidently once in a while does get to travel to Yemen, although it's very dangerous, but uh, often has up to the minute reporting on what's going on. On the good news, 
there was just this week a delegation from the Oman government, which is trying to help mediate in, in the conflict. There's not a lot out about that yet. It only was a couple of days ago, and, and there haven't been any reports on specific uh, negotiation points or anything like that. But it, it's good to see that there is intervention to try to, to stop the, the carnage. One of the main problems has been the blockade, which I hadn't thought of it this way, but I saw a report just today that talks about the blockade can be considered tantamount to a form of torture. Now, the blockade has been partially lifted, but only about 40% of the fuel that people need in Yemen gets through. Uh, There is food aid that gets through, but no medicines. No container ships have been able to dock at the port of Hodeida. So it's at best a very a slight easing of the blockade, and it's not doing what is necessary for the people of Yemen to ease their suffering and their pain. And one of the things is you can't look at these, and, and this is true in Afghanistan and other places too, you can't look at a solution as just being humanitarian aid. You have to have a functioning economy. And while you have a blockade that is still pretty comprehensive, also only one flight a day gets into Sana'a Airport from uh, Jordan, from Amman. You just can't have a functioning economy. And whatever you're trying to do in terms of humanitarian aid to relieve people's suffering, while good, is not sufficient. You need a functioning economy. Kevin, the, the report you mentioned by the World Organization to End Torture mentions that, in fact, if that's the case, the coalition member states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE, could actually be held responsible, leading to criminal charges uh, under international law for their agents. Would you agree with this charge? And, And would you also think that the US could be itself liable as a major supplier of arms and support to the Saudi led war effort? Well, I think it's an interesting way to look at the conflict and the suffering of the Yemeni people. And I think that has to be what we keep in mind, you know, eliminating the suffering of, of the people of Yemen. Uh, there's a lot in international law that is under dispute or that is difficult to establish. Uh, would you be able to, for example, bring uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE to the world court? And could you name the United States as a co-conspirator, et cetera? I think those are, those are interesting if they help raise uh, the profile and raise public education and awareness of the issues. I think they can help raise pressure. Again, I mentioned, and we can talk about this a little bit more when we get into U.S. policy and our efforts. Uh, Saudi Arabia feels like they are under a lot of pressure, and that is why they have been somewhat restrained and have not uh, conducted any airstrikes since uh, since last uh, October. Now, on the flip side, there have been uh, charges of war crimes uh, against both the Saudi-led uh, forces and also against the Houthis. So um, I, I think the, these things are interesting to look at in terms of international law. I don't think they're cut and dried. And then there's the question of who would accept the legitimacy or the of the court if it's the world court or whoever it is. So I just think it's an interesting way to look at this and say, Um, Because people have an an abhorrence of torture, as they should have an abhorrence of torture. So if if you look at a blockade that way, and of course, a blockade is an act of war already. um, I just think it's a very interesting lens, which I hadn't thought about or hadn't seen until I saw that report uh, myself today. I think the report may have come out last fall. Uh, and, and it's very interesting to me because if you look into the history of Yemen and the people there and the Houthis, it's all fascinating. But you don't have to be an expert on all that to understand 
that U.S. support for this war and for the Saudi-led coalition has to end in order for the war to end and the suffering of the people of Yemen to end. Well, let's let's go right to that then and ask you if you can tell us more about the work that Peace Action is doing in seeking to end U.S. support for this campaign, uh, the Saudi-led camp- campaign, that is. Um, who, who would you say your allies are in Congress? And what do you think the impact has been of the campaign so far? Well, if you go back to uh, the Trump administration, Trump, of course, was a big pal of the Saudis. Uh, not that Biden isn't also, as evidenced by that r- ridiculous fist bump that he gave to Mohammed bin Salman at the summit meeting. Uh, but if you go back to 2019, we were successful in Congress in doing something that's very difficult to do. And this has broader implications, not just for the war in Yemen, but for congressional war powers. For too long, uh, presidents, presidential administrations have gotten away with things they should not get away with constitutionally in terms of war and committing U.S. military forces. So in 2019, we passed a war powers resolution, which goes back to 1973 and efforts by Congress at that time to end the Vietnam War and to force Nixon to withdraw from Vietnam. So we actually passed a war powers resolution saying that the United States could not continue uh, with this war. And this war has never been declared by Congress. And so there's no legal justification for it. Now, that war powers resolution, which passed in both houses of Congress, was vetoed by Trump. No surprise. And we did not have the votes in Congress to override. Now, fast forward to the Biden administration. The issue in terms of what was going on in Congress or in the administration was sort of stagnant for almost two years. Early in his administration, after taking office, Biden announced that he was going to stop offensive weapons sales to Saudi Arabia. As far as I'm concerned, all weapon sales are offensive, to use you know, a double meaning of the word offensive, but that we would stop selling offensive weapons that they could use to attack Saudi Arabia. Well, That was, uh, at best, a partial uh, answer and and at worst a ruse because it didn't stop the war and Saudi Arabia took it as as a green light. Uh, So that was early in uh, the administration, so which almost two years ago at this point. And it had been fairly stagnant in Congress, even though us, Peace Action and other groups have been working on this issue in Congress and, and with the administration for quite a while. And the reality was you just had a partisan problem, which I I don't like, but you have to understand this if you're lobbying Congress, a partisan problem that you had a lot of Democrats who had no problem voting for the war powers resolution when Trump was in office, didn't want to do it to Biden, you know, their president from their party. Even though, again, it is not just about ending the war in Yemen, as important as this is, it's about the Congress reclaiming its constitutional war powers, which we need that desperately if we're to reclaim our democracy. One of the least democratic parts of of U.S. governance now is the way that presidents act almost like kings in terms of committing U.S. military forces to war or hostilities, you know, wherever it is around the world. So it was kind of stuck for almost uh, two years. And then in December, Bernie Sanders in Vermont, who's been one of our champions, said he would bring up a war powers resolution because he wasn't satisfied with the administration. What happened, though, Uh, And I give Sanders a lot of credit for playing a sort of middling or uncertain hand very well. It turned out we just didn't have the votes at this point, including a problem with both California senators. Feinstein and Padilla said they were against the War Powers Resolution. So what Sanders did, he announced that there would be a vote. We mobilized, as did others. 
uh, pressing senators to find out where they were. And we did get a few senators who weren't co-sponsors to publicly declare their position, pro or con, more pro, which was good, but we still didn't have the votes. So Sanders decided to withdraw, which I think made sense, but he did get a commitment because the administration came out against it, that he would negotiate with the administration uh, for some kind of resolution or change in U.S. policy. If that doesn't uh, bear fruit and there, there's talk of some kind of executive order from Biden, which might be at least a partial solution, uh, then Sanders can bring it up again and we will be pushing him to bring it up again. So that was just in December. There were the holidays. Congress just reconvened. Uh, so we're in a little bit of limbo, but probably not for much longer. So as far as we know, um, the, the, the Sanders folks and his staff, et cetera, will be if they aren't already negotiating with the administration. I'm sure the administration is not thrilled about that. Um, but again, I think it was the best that Sanders could do when we really didn't have the votes to pass the War Powers Resolution in Congress in December. And you are listening to Swana Region Radio on independent and listener-sponsored KPFK, 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, 93.7 San Diego, and worldwide on kpfk.org. And I'm Ankina Antaram, my co-host is David Lloyd, and we're exploring efforts to end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war on Yemen with Kevin Martin, president of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. For clarification here, when you say Congress, which of the houses is instrumental in the War Powers Act? Are both involved? You mentioned California Senators Feinstein and Padilla and their opposition to the War Powers Resolution. What what is motivating them? And you know, what what do you think their their agenda is here? So the War Powers Resolution is is interesting. The the short answer is our understanding or, or the practice has been that we need both the House and the Senate to pass it. And that that did happen in 2019. There is a legal interpretation that one version of the War Powers Resolution, if you bring it up, and this is part of the arcana of parliamentary rules in Congress, that one version of the War Powers Resolution, if you do it correctly in the House, is not subject to a presidential veto. So that's something we might have to Mm. explore later down the line. Um, But at this point, because of Sanders' leadership, even though we did pass it in 2019, as I've said, in both houses, because of Sanders' leadership, the first step, if you will, is in the Senate. And that's partly because we think we probably have a better chance to win in the House anyway. So uh, it's better to go in the Senate and see how we we do. In terms of Feinstein and Padilla, I think it's partisan uh, protection of the president. I, I think that's all it is. I read something about Padilla saying that a war powers resolution would complicate negotiations or uh, might spoil the truce. It was garbage. I mean, there's there's no coherent reason for either of them to oppose. And now that you have uh, Katie Porter announcing that she's going to run uh, against Feinstein, and that's maybe partly, hopefully, thinking that Feinstein might finally retire, um, that could put pressure on Feinstein for on this issue or other issues as well. I mean, we don't know. And, and the thing is, the hashtag and the slogan that people use is Yemen can't wait. And that has to be the focus, the suffering of the people of Yemen, not partisan political considerations in this country. On the other hand, people like me and other advocates of the groups we work with have to understand these partisan dynamics and either you know, convince Padilla, Feinstein, Chuck Schumer, Menendez, others who are Democrats who have not been on the right side of this 
that they're wrong or, you know, put political pressure on them, or if there's a way to satisfy their concerns in these negotiations between Bernie Sanders and the administration. Assuming that Congress does pass the Yemen war power resolution, isn't there still a chance that Biden might veto it? And I mean, I know Biden campaigned uh, during his campaign said that he will oppose this war, but uh, has he followed through with that? So what was what seemed like a good step but has proved insufficient was early in his administration, soon after taking office, this declaration, you know, that we would uh, that he, he would stop offensive weapons being sold to Saudi Arabia. On, on that point, one of the things, and this has to go with accountability and oversight, uh, the State Department and the Department of Defense are supposed to certify, and this is generally speaking with weapon sales, U.S. weapon sales, that those weapons are not being uh, used to kill civilians, and they have not been making that certification. So whether we can pass a war powers resolution or somehow otherwise, it doesn't have to be, that doesn't have to be the only mechanism to end U.S. Uh, support for the war, but it is kind of the most direct and high profile one. There, there are still basic governmental uh, governance oversight functions that are not being followed. And so we have to pressure the administration to, to, to say to the Department of State and the Department of Defense, you have to do your job. You have to you know, certify this. And I think they can't. They can't certify that. That's the problem. They can't truthfully certify that U.S. weapons aren't being used to kill civilians in Yemen. Jamal Benomar, former UN Undersecretary General, who served as Special Envoy for Yemen until 2015, has said, quote, the situation is extremely fragile because Yemen has fragmented now, and you have different areas of Yemen under the control of different warlords, end of quote. What can you tell us about the fragmentation? Well, it's a fascinating, and there are some web pages that I would recommend listeners go to if you want to see a, a little bit about the situation on the ground in Yemen in terms of which factions control which parts of the country. There are at least four major factions, but there's also al-Qaeda in Yemen, and also ISIS or ISIL uh, has attacked various forces. So it's a fairly complicated situation. And again, you don't necessarily have to say, I support this team or that team. The Houthis themselves, the rebels, are fascinating. The Houthi people, of course, the history of Yemen, the human civilization in that part of the world goes back at least 3,000 years. And there were different colonial dynasties and rule. And even among uh, various factions of Islam, it's very, very interesting. And who follows what? And the Houthis are not easily, okay, they have been getting support from Iran, but they're not puppets of Iran. And, you know, looking at this as a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia and part of the struggles in the region for primacy between those two, uh, again, that doesn't serve the people of Yemen. And there have even been some concessions by Saudi Arabia and even outreach to Iran about trying to tamp that down, the, the regional uh, uh, competition for dominance in the region between Iran and Saudi Arabia. But inside Yemen itself, it, it really does help to look at a map. Uh, I'm a big map person myself. Uh, but if you look at where the Houthis control, it's not the largest part of the country. It's also not the part of the country where they, they their ethnic group has historically dominated. Um, they have felt like they've been oppressed for centuries. Um, but they do control uh, the capital of Sana'a, and the western part on the Red Sea, you know, the, it's uh, the, uh, Yemen is on the, the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, south of, of Saudi Arabia. On the south, it's bordered by the Gulf of Aden, and on the 
west uh, by the, the Red Sea. And the Red Sea port of Hodaida is what's blockaded, and that's the main port. So the Houthis control that part of the country, but not the port. And that's one of the biggest issues in terms of not getting the aid in and the supplies, et cetera. So it's a fascinating conflict in terms of history and culture and who are these different factions and why is the country so divided, et cetera. But again, you don't have to be an expert in all of that. You don't have to know all the history and the culture to know that the United States is part of the suffering of the people of Yemen. And we can end this if we end U.S. support for the Saudi-led war. So I, I wonder your strategy is uh, to focus on the United States and their armament of Saudi Arabia and end the war that way. Are you putting any pressure on, on Iran in any way? So, so it's pressure on the United States government to change its behavior in terms of we work on Iran as well. I can talk about that separately, but it's it's pressure by people in the United States for the most part to pressure the the change in behavior of the U.S. government. You know, in terms of who might be putting pressure on Iran, I would think that's in the diplomatic phase where you, where you do have UN uh, and also the Oman government that are trying to intervene uh, to try to bring diplomatic pressure among the various parties. So peace action has always tried to educate and engage citizens in its campaigns and to function, to function as a civil society organization by mobilizing grassroots pressure. How can ordinary people like our listeners get involved in this and other campaigns? Well, if you go to our webpage, peaceaction.org, you can sign up for our action alerts and we won't inundate you with emails every day like some organizations do, but we will let you know how you can become active in lobbying Congress, in helping with public education, in learning more about these uh, issues, and also in organizing. As I said earlier, we have affiliates and chapters and associate groups and members all over the country. Uh, and so if you go to our webpage and sign up for alerts, or, or you could look to see, you know, is there a group in my region? Of course, one of the things now with a lot of online organizing, it's great to have brick and mortar groups in a particular place, but you don't necessarily have to. And we're going to be doing a, a, a webinar on Yemen coming up, excuse me, in February. And it's going to be timed in mid-February because uh, on March 1st, there's going to be a day of action demonstrations around the country that Peace Action and a lot of groups we work with are going to be having on Yemen at congressional offices. If we haven't had a vote by then or an agreement with the administration, we'll be putting pressure on members of Congress to declare you know, where they stand on Yemen. If we have a vote coming up, then it'll be directly, you know, you should vote for this war powers resolution. So that's March 1st. And as I said, we're going to organize, we don't have a date yet, but we're going to organize uh, a webinar on this issue so that people can get more educated and more mobilized. And it'll probably be two weeks before March 1st in order to give people uh, that window to organize. Well, thanks. Thanks for that, Kevin. And I hope people will uh, want to get engaged with you and the organization, which which I say I, I've supported for quite a long time myself. A declaration of interest, I guess, full disclosure. Well, thank you, Kevin. And thank you for all the tremendous work that you and Peace Action have done over 20 years in your case, and even longer in the case of the organization as a whole. And, and I know that, you know, despite the appearance of not succeeding in some campaigns that it really has been effective as as a way of, of organizing opposition to war and armaments and so forth. So thank you. And I'm afraid that's all the time we have on our show today. 
The Swana Collective would like to thank our guest, Kevin Martin, who's president of Peace Action and the Peace Action Education Fund. And we'll link to their work and to other information about Yemen through our social media. This and all our shows are available to download at kpfk.org. And all of Swana Region Radio shows can be found on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, and Radio Public, or wherever else you, you found our work. Please let your friends and colleagues know about these podcasts and help us get the work out. My name is David Lloyd of the South Asia, West Asia, and Northern Africa, or SWANA Collective. And on behalf of Ankine and all of our collective members, I'd like to wish our listeners a great day. Mm-hmm.